Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. What if you could get someone famous to promote your product or service? That's the dream of influencer marketing. But getting in touch with those influencers and making the relationship meaningful is complicated. That's what Morgan Kling, CEO of Clout HQ, specializes in helping business-to-consumer companies accomplish. In this episode of Hack the Process, Morgan tells us what drew him to the field of influencer marketing early in life, how he leveraged his youth and curiosity to nurture connections with other young founders, and why he decided to skip college and go directly into the world of entrepreneurship. Today I'm speaking with Morgan Kling. He is the founder and CEO of Clout HQ, a company bringing influencer marketing to the world. Morgan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, David? So far, so good. I'm really curious about what you've been doing with uh, influencer marketing. It's a term a lot of us have heard. I don't think a lot of us really understand how it works and certainly how to get involved in it. Yeah. So influencer marketing is basically when a brand uses the voice of somebody else that is trusted in a specific community to promote and endorse their products. It's usually on social media, but you can also use influencers on conventional media buying like news stations or blogs or pretty much anywhere where audiences are gravitating towards finding the key thought leaders in those spaces, and then reaching out to them to find a way that you can collaborate to promote the brand. Okay. And I think we've all probably been exposed to some variations of this. Can, can you give us some examples of, of where influencer marketing might have touched our lives? Sure. So uh, I think the most prominent one in the last year is going to be Fire Festival. They were obviously not, not the best example of a successful influencer campaign. Well, I suppose it, it could be considered successful, but the overall event didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to. That's probably the most prominent one in the last year. Some other brands that do it really well are Pepsi, EA Sports, Disney. They work with some pretty high-level celebrities. And then going all the way back down to the smaller brands that basically started from nowhere, like Tuft & Needle, Casper Mattresses, Snow Teeth Whitening, brands that basically come up with an idea and a, a creative way to solve a problem. And then they go out and find celebrities to start promoting their products. So yeah, it covers a wide range of different industries and company types. I see it as when a new platform comes out and it's a new innovative idea, that's something that people are not used to on social media. A lot of these platforms will find people that are successful on other platforms and bring them onto theirs and then coach them on, on how to create content that they think is a good fit for their the way that their platform is laid out. So one excellent example of that would be Vine. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but Vine was a company that came out, I think it was in 2012. It was like six second videos where they would just invite people on and they would just make these crazy weird videos in like six seconds. Yeah, no, I used to love Vine. I was really sorry when it went away. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Yeah, although it seems like uh, things like TikTok have started to step in that space. Yeah, TikTok's blowing up right now. And the cool thing with that is it covers a much wider range of talents, whereas Vine was mostly just like who could tell the best joke in six seconds. TikTok has a lot of visual artists, musical artists, just people that are, are good at capturing the moment and repurposing content on that platform. So one of the ways that Vine developed its following, I guess, was by reaching out to influencers and having them use the platform to create things. Is TikTok doing the same thing? You know, I'm not too familiar with TikTok's process. I know that they're a Chinese-based company. I think they're based in China. 
I don't think they have the depth of partnerships with their creators as Vine did. Vine took a, a really close approach to actually figuring out who the people that were most active and most followed on their platform was, and then reaching out to them and kind of coaching them on how to make their content better. And I don't think TikTok is nearly as intimate with their most active users as Vine was. It's interesting because when you think of an example like like Vine, that's definitely a place where they had to bring creators into their platform. But there are also situations where you might have a product that's completely unrelated to any sort of like media or marketing or distribution, but you still want to use influencer marketing. And so you have to take advantage of the channels that those influencers have already created. It brings me back to like the main challenge that influencers and creators are finding on social media is bringing their audience to other platforms where the dynamic of how they're interacting with people is a little bit different. It seems that influencers find one place to plant their roots as their like their stomping grounds for creating content. And then to expand to any other platforms is, has been really difficult in any sort of commercial way. I think that YouTube and Instagram right now are definitely the biggest players of people that are for the creators to cultivate these audiences in just slightly different ways. And other than that, nobody's really coming to mind of an example that has captured the attention of an audience and then brought them to a completely separate platform. That's really interesting because I, I, I would expect that, say, you know, you, you get to the level of celebrities and you see people who, once they're famous in one medium, they can go into any medium and then they just start being able to create content around that and people will follow them because people know their names. But the people who start as influencers on one platform, they tend to stay focused on that platform. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, now that I think about it, looking at the level of celebrities versus smaller creators, so there's kind of different segments of it. You have small influencers that are like a thousand followers up to like a hundred thousand followers. And then between a hundred thousand and a million followers, you start to get into more like the commercial value. And then where it really starts to get interesting, where people are able to sort of transition into doing something backwards or going back in time is when brands like Disney will partner with a really big YouTube creator and then bring them on as like the head actor for their new movie or their new TV show or something like that. That would be an example of where a creator is able to leverage what they've built and put it into a newish creation that isn't necessarily a platform, but it's a, a community or a, a new creative endeavor. Yeah. So it sounds like it's it's the rare example of the influencer who's got like a, a small to medium sized commercial market who is able to make that crossover. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in influencer marketing in the first place. My journey with online businesses got started like a lot of other people's. When I was 18, I got an apartment that I couldn't really afford to pay the bills on with just my normal full-time job. And so I started following people that were very successful that seemed like they weren't supposed to be successful. Like there was kind of a stereotype of what like a rich person looked like when I was first getting into the online world of like what a successful businessman looked like and CEO and stuff. And then I started to find people that were younger than me, even when I was 18 years old, that were far more successful than I even thought was possible. And I thought that was very interesting that they were able to accomplish so much so quickly. And when I started to build relations with relationships with them and getting to know them, a common theme with them was they were leveraging the audience of other people that were more successful. I mean, a, a perfect example would be Movement Watches. It's basically a, a watch company that two college kids started in their dorm room. They realized like, okay, we, we don't really have the budget to back up like a huge advertising spend or anything like that. So we'll find the next best thing, which is people that are already trusted and start sending them our watches to promote them that way. And I became really fascinated with that process because the typical way that brands could acquire huge market shares in huge industries, usually the only way you could do that then was to raise funding or to have like a, a really lucky break where you find a strategic partner or something like that. And I was seeing these people do it with next to nothing for a budget. And it was purely just off leveraging somebody else's trust that they had built at that time. And I, I was just fascinated. And I, I wanted to find a way that I could help more brands do it and then find ways that I could just learn more about it. 
It's interesting to hear that even as recently as a few years ago, it was possible to, to do this without spending a lot of money. It seems like when I think of influencer marketing today, there's a pretty significant financial investment involved in getting an, an influencer's interest. Yeah, definitely. The cool thing about influencer marketing, though, is you can find influencers in a wide range of price ranges. You can find people that will promote your products for $100. You can find people that will promote your products for a million dollars. And that range of access makes it a little bit more or a little easier for brands that might not have the huge financial backing of others to start leveraging it. And then you kind of work your way up from there. Now, you mentioned that you saw people, you saw them doing this and you started interacting with them. You became part of their social circle. How did you actually reach out to these folks and get involved with them? Yeah. So when I started to realize the theme with these people that didn't have the financial backing growing so quickly, I really just started sending them direct messages on Instagram and like finding kind of finding their email addresses and like kind of stalking in that way. And then reaching out like, hey, I don't know much about online marketing, but I would love to learn whatever you know, and I'll do whatever you need me to do for free whatever it takes, I would be happy to offer my services in exchange for you just kind of sharing what you've learned so far about the space. And with that, it actually worked much better than I would have thought it would. I ended up getting a job at a startup. I built a relationship with the, the founder of that startup just by uh, messaging him on Snapchat at the time, actually, and making some sort of comment about the social media world and how these brands were growing so quickly. And I was very fortunate with that because it kind of introduced me to the space of more people and like meeting the key figures in the space. And then from there, I just kept doing the same thing. And it, honestly, it, it came from having an unquenchable thirst for learning and seeing what like the hacks were for social media world, because it's, it's such a fascinating place. And like at the time, it was cool because older generations weren't really in tune with how things like where the back doors to certain processes were. And being able to have conversations with other young people, like the people that were actually building the communities and have conversations with them in a way that they were used to, which is, you know, how most teenagers talk to each other, stuff, stuff like that, and like <laughs> weird chat rooms and stuff. It really opened up the doors and pulled the curtain back to how things were really being managed and how things were really growing. It's wonderful. You're leveraging the advantages that you have available to you because you've got this generational relationship with these people and they may be dismissed by older generations who don't even understand what's happening around this sort of thing. Yeah. And honestly, it's it's totally backwards because it wasn't a matter of reaching out and being super professional and like on it every time. And like most of the common things that people would attribute to their success in the professional world, it was more so just about being like casual and reaching out to people and having a conversation like they're your buddy from like football or they're your buddy from algebra class or something like that. And it was, it was just so natural. And I, I love the fact that I didn't have to like put on a professional face when that wasn't really my personality. And it seemed like everybody else enjoyed that as well. I think for some people, it would be exciting just to hear that that could be leveraged into a job. How did that transition happen? I mean, did, did you have the experience needed to do this kind of work? Or was it just your energy and enthusiasm, do you think? I definitely didn't have the experience to do the type of work when I first started. Prior to doing online marketing, I was actually a diesel technician. I worked for FedEx and I was repairing trucks on third shift. So complete, complete opposite industries. But I really just didn't see a future with that job. And I knew that the next best thing that I was fascinated with was human psychology and persuasion tactics that people could use to influence people's behavior. I started looking at opportunities of where I could do that, that still I thought I would be fulfilled with. And there was one avenue that I could take, which would lead me into the professional world, whether it be like working in professional law firms or like in the legal industry or something of that nature, or like a, a corporate agency. Or I could go down this path of kind of more casual, less rules, less restrictions, just conversations with people that I thought would be interesting to be around. And I chose the path of more casual just because I, I figured I would be happier there. And I saw many more people that were my age and younger, significantly more successful than I was. And it just seemed like the natural thing to grab towards. 
And that can be really inspiring and it can keep you motivated when you might have some some doubts about your own abilities. One of the things that interested me about your background is that like a lot of people these days, you chose to bypass college and go directly into the work world, right? Yep, that is right. Yeah. I'm curious about that decision, especially when you have an interest in founding a company and maybe even human psychology. Yeah, it's something that I've pondered a lot on for the last couple of years, because looking at it now, like I'm absolutely obsessed with learning about things and reading books. Like I constantly am like reading through articles and Harvard Business Review stuff like constantly. So you would think I would be a natural fit in like normal academia world. But for me, sitting in a classroom just didn't work. Like I just couldn't sit there. I couldn't pay attention in class. Like 15 minutes would go by of a teacher talking and like I wouldn't remember any of it. Like they would be like, okay, class, like go off and do your thing. And I would have no idea. I couldn't figure out how to get around that. And eventually I, I realized that maybe that's just my personality type and I should find the way to best leverage my talents now. And that was more so just going out and like trying to learn as quickly as I could and failing as fast as I could so I could figure out where I was wrong and then asking for feedback from other people because I was never a classroom learner. And it was something that was really difficult for me. Even through high school, I, I never did well in school grade wise. And I didn't think that college would be a worthwhile investment for me, both on a time scale and just financial scale, because I didn't, I didn't have the money to pay for college. And I didn't want to take out any student loans. Well, that's probably a wise choice, actually. And honestly, once you've had a little bit of life experience under your belt, you might find that you can go back to college with a more directed focus on what you want to learn. You know, I think about that often. Maybe one day in the future, I'll go back and get a degree in something. I would love to see what the dynamics of that is, would how that would fit, knowing that I have more of a concentrated focus on one particular thing. And plus, finding new ways that I can learn things and absorb information. I think colleges are best for that. Like maybe in high school, there's less resources for people to figure out what their learning style is. And there's just less options of people to go to and time that teachers have available. And maybe in college, it would be easier just to migrate to people that have the same type of learning style, and I could be around them more often. It's true. I, I was talking with a friend recently when we were talking about how the academic system in this country is really more set up around indoctrination than it is around trying to teach you some, something that's useful for your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't like to get too deep in that because it's more of like a, it turns into like a political conversation, but that's ab <laughs> absolutely right. I think people are given a certain amount of resources that they're able to divvy up throughout their students. And it's just unfortunate that the resources that they're able to pull from are so small that it turns into an indoctr indoctrination process that they go through rather than something where people are able to navigate what their own interests are and expand on their creative abilities, maybe instead of just taking tests and becoming a good memorizer of information. Well, it sounds like your challenge wasn't with learning because, for example, you've incorporated this concept of fail early, fail often in order to learn. I'm curious where you got that. That's a great question. I would say that the majority of my successes so far, which are very small in comparison to some of the other people out there in the online world, the majority of my successes that came early came from just looking like an idiot for a split second and then like kind of absorbing that pain for a second and then realizing or reassessing where I could have maybe done better. And I learned very early on that in order for me to really accept a new strategy or a new approach at going about something, I needed some sort of pain to, I don't know, kind of sink that memory in a little bit better. And so for me, like I, I try to do things that are just outside of my comfort zone enough where there's the possibility I'll fail, but not so bad that like, if I do fail, I'm going to never going to want to come out of my bedroom again. I like that. It's a, it's a very good way to think about pain because people will avoid all of these things that make them uncomfortable. But if you can think of them as the, the glue that cements these new ideas into your life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I, I look at it often whenever I do something and I look back like a week later and I'm like, man, I just shouldn't have done that. There's always something to be learned from there. Even if the pain at the moment feels like it's not in your best interest, usually the learning experience from that is worth 10 times more than what you could have done if it was a perfect execution of what you thought would happen. So would you mind sharing one of those failures that you learned something from? 
something that I have practiced a lot in my personal life and just in my personal relationships and in my business relationships with other people is having conversations with people and knowing that it doesn't have to be just like it looks looks like in the movies or it doesn't have to be just like it sounds like on the radio and, and things like that. And so early on, I, I wasn't the best communicator. I would stutter a lot. I would stumble on my words. I would like forget words for long periods of time. And in the early days, I was really self-conscious of that. And then after I was having conversations with a huge range of different people, I realized that everybody from the most successful people that I knew, like people managing multi-hundred million dollar companies all the way down to people that were just getting started, like they had the same problems too. And for me, a big learning experience was getting on an interview with somebody, I, th I think it was like a Facebook Live or something, and just like not knowing what to do and not knowing how to navigate the process and having everybody see it and like, like nobody really watched it because, you know, it's Facebook and like nobody was really watching Facebook lives at the time. And so for me, like not being able to go through that interviewing process and feel like I was articulate enough to really expand on my thoughts the way that they were that they looked in my mind going through that and just re listening to them and like hearing your own voice and kind of cringing out of that first and then just taking notes of like, okay, I think I can do this better. I think when I start expanding on my thoughts, it should look like this rather than like just an assortment of random words, mostly just practicing and trying stuff and, and not be myself up if I, I goofed on something because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm still fairly young and I, I know that I have a lot of time. I hope I have a lot of time left to continue honing in on what I'm trying to be good at. Well, I guarantee you that learning process, it's going to be a lifelong thing for, for as long as you've got. I love it. And it sounds to me like the, the ability to present yourself well, to communicate well in these situations, that's also an influencer skill, which might have been one of the reasons that you were attracted to influencer marketing in the first place. Yeah, that's a good point. I think the early people that I really took a liking to were always excellent in the presence of others. And that was an attribute that I wanted to be able to say that I had in myself. And so I think you're right, following those people that were able to articulate their thoughts in a way that really drove home what they were trying to communicate. Like that was always something that was really inspiring for me. If you decided you wanted to be in the influencer space, I'm curious what it took for you to build a business model that you could really get behind. The process hasn't been flawless up until now, like a lot of other people's journey on building a, a software platform. In the very beginning, I, I didn't know how to build a software. I didn't know what steps need to be taken so that I could avoid some of the simple failures that now I can see as like obvious as day. In the very beginning, it was a matter of over-promising to some people and knowing that on the back end, I would do whatever it took, no matter what type of sacrifice it was for me, whether it was draining my bank account to make it happen, whether it was working nonstop to make it happen. And just knowing that if I can deliver on one thing the first time, then I'm positive that I can find ways to make it easier the second time, which would be easier the third time and easier the fourth time. And then just really paying attention to like, okay, I realized that when I'm running a campaign for this big brand, this part takes me significantly longer than I think it would take for this type of personality type. So maybe instead of me doing it next time, I'll hire somebody and have them do it. And just really being brutally honest with myself about where I thought I was most equipped to handle certain processes for clients that I was working with, and then outsourcing to the people that I thought were better at it than I would be. And that makes sense. And I doubt that anybody's journey has been as pure and clean as it appears when you hear them discuss it in, in retrospect. So don't think that your <laughs> that your experience has been unique in that. I'm really interested in how you got started from zero to getting that first business idea and getting that first campaign going. Yeah, I was super fortunate. My mom had a consulting business. She was based in Texas and I was living at Michigan at the time. And we were communicating a lot more about the business than we were about actually like family matters. But she had a consulting business and I thought it'd be really interesting if I could find a way to help her bring her business online. And so I started watching YouTube videos about how email marketing worked and how people set up Facebook ads and how to just build a brand online. 
And then I asked her if I could just experiment on her business. And of course, she was like, sure, like she wasn't the best at Facebook or email marketing. So I started experimenting with her stuff. I did that for, I don't know, like six or seven months. Like I never, I was doing this all at nighttime, like right before I would go to work at FedEx. And I just started picking up more and more tips and tricks here and there. And then what really changed it for me is I bought a course from somebody named Perry Belcher in the online marketing space. I watched that and like, I thought I knew everything at that point. I went out and I tried all of it. And like some of it worked and some of it didn't. And then I found a community of Facebook groups where I would go in there and I would ask questions of people that were also working in the same industries that I was. And same thing, just people offering guidance to me and offering help of sharing their experience and what they wish they would have done differently. And then going back and implementing that. I think to make a a long answer short, it was really just about trying to refine it as quickly as possible and figuring out what the point of most friction was in every aspect of the business. So on the sales side, on the marketing side, on the finance side, on the employee training side, leadership side, basically everything, I would try to figure out what was holding me back the most. And then I would observe other people's companies, the startup that I was working with in Texas. I moved to San Antonio shortly after starting the my agency and seeing how they operated the business and talking to other people and just constantly asking for feedback. That was probably the single most valuable habit that I adopted early on is not being afraid to ask people questions and not being afraid to maybe look like I don't know anything about what I'm trying to present that I know about just so I can get to the good information and and learn from other people's experiences. It can be a very powerful position when people are underestimating you. Exactly. Yep. It sounds like you started off by uh, leveraging a familiar relationship with your mother and helping her agency get some position. And in the process, you landed this first job and also were starting your own agency on the side. Yeah. So I was a contractor for a social media startup in San Antonio, Texas, and I was simultaneously working with different clients online, just running advertising campaigns with influencers for them. And then after I did that for about 10 months, I was still working with my mom's business and I was working with a handful of other clients, just basically setting up influencer campaigns for them. And then at some point, my mom and I had a conversation about like, hey, I don't think my future is going to involve your specific industry. So I split that path there. And then at the same time, I left the startup because I wanted to start working with the clients that I thought were most adding value to the communities that I cared about. When I left the startup, I started working with clients that were in some way or another adding value to their customers' lives other than just sending them products or you know, providing a, a widget or a gizmo or something like that. And I really focused on just building a business around that. Instead of working with clients that I knew would pay me the most money, I started optimizing for fulfillment. And I started optimizing based on what I thought would make me the happiest when it came time to go home for Christmas and to explain to my dad that like, this is what I do online. This is my business. This is who I work with. And I wanted to be working with companies that were actually contributing value to the world rather than just asking people to buy their fidget spinners and face masks and stuff like that. Again, it's a privileged position to be in where you're able to choose your clients based on something like that. And it's remarkable and it's admirable. You were working with your mother and then you started getting external clients. How did you make that transition? I just started compiling lists of people that I thought would be interesting to work with. And I would send them a cold email and kind of explain like, hey, I'm not the best digital marketer in the world, but I have access to this huge network of influencers that I think would really contribute to the success of your business. And I would love to find a way that I could connect the two of you so that they can start promoting yours and you could help them advance in their career as well. It really just came down to figuring out what the brands could most use that I had available or at my disposal, and then finding the easiest way that I could connect those two and kind of see something blast off and flourish. Cool. Uh, So I think I missed a step in there. How did you get access to a huge network of influencers? Yeah. So going back to what I said about the Facebook groups, I started posting in there fairly often just questions that I would have. And most of it were very surface level, like basic questions. And then after a while, I started to pick up and I was reading other people's questions and seeing the answers. And then like I would go out and test and experiment on this stuff. 
And eventually it got to the point where I knew the answers to more of the questions that were being posted than I had questions. And so I would start answering other people's based on what I had learned or the feedback that I had gotten from others. So adding value in that way kind of built a little bit of credibility around myself and then also connecting other advertisers that I thought would be a good fit. So while I was doing all this, I was still having conversations with people. Like if I was stuck on something like email marketing, like how to set up an email campaign, how to set one of those up for a business, I would reach out to somebody that I thought was really good at that. I would find a way that I could exchange value with them. So they would teach me what they knew about email marketing. And then if I was having a conversation with somebody else about a different subject, and they just mentioned like, we're looking for somebody that knows how to do email marketing, I would connect the two people. And with that came meeting influencers, meeting people that were running these big brands that had a budget to work with the influencers. And when I had a budget put behind me by these brands, when brands started to entrust me to manage their budgets for hiring influencers online, it basically removes all the barriers to getting in contact with somebody. When you say like, I've got $1,000 to pay you right now, let's have a conversation about it. It really removes all the normal barriers of getting in touch with somebody that's usually harder to get to. And so I think the side of building relationships with people and just trying to build a, a level of rapport with them and then having money to compensate people for what they were looking for really opened up a lot of doors for me. And I think money is a real sign of respect in this day and age because people often approach somebody just because they want some help. I have a friend who's a photographer. He's always getting approached by people saying, could you just do this thing for me? It'll be great for your portfolio. It'll look good. But professionally, I don't dance. I make money moves. <laughs> exactly. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And so it makes a big difference when you've got an opportunity to approach somebody with money from a client. And I guess that that was the opportunity to expand your network of influencers because you had clients with money and you were able to then approach influencers you didn't know and say, would you work with me? Exactly. And mostly it validated what they were doing. So again, like a lot of people think that influencers are just like these popular people on social media or on the internet that have everything made, but also like they want to be validated that their efforts are being put to good use. And the way that they're measuring that what they're doing is worthwhile is how much money they're making every month. Like that's their indicator for how good their brand deals are going, how deep their influence goes into a specific network. And so being able to validate them and then kind of sneaking in questions here and there, like, hey, I noticed you were in Bali last month. Like, how is that? Like just starting like casual conversations with people and then trying to learn more about their personal lives and what their ambitions were and then finding ways that I could support that in some way or another. What kind of technology do you use to keep track of all of these influencers? So I built a software last year that was for brands to connect with influencers. But as far as the people that I was connecting with, it all just sticks in my head, I guess. I don't know. The professional connections that I had that I was mostly drawing my information from or my knowledge from, those were people that I was, I was communicating with pretty frequently and just having conversations with consistently. And it became a relationship where we were exchanging information about what was working in certain industries and what wasn't working, and then connecting them with the people that they needed to be connected with. And the repetition with that kind of just expanded. And so I never used a software to track any of this stuff. It's always just been kind of when somebody starts talking about a topic, usually like my eyes will get all wide and I'll realize like, oh, I know somebody that's perfect for this. Like I would love to connect you with them. And maybe I should use the software for it, but it's always just come from like memory and like a burst of, you know, excitement in my mind when I realize like I know the perfect person to connect you with. Is your memory the backbone of Cloud HQ then? No, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. So Cloud HQ is a little bit different. The way that Cloud HQ is used by brands is more on an analytical side and less on a personality side. So with that, the majority of brands are approaching influencer marketing right now on like an analytical approach and less on a personality approach. So Cloud HQ is built to serve that need in that particular space. And it, it was never meant to be a way to build relationships with the influencers. It was purely just a way to organize a bunch of filtered influencers that were being crowdsourced by other people in similar industries. 
Ah, okay. So Cloud HQ then is a it's a cloud sourced database of, of influencers that people can use to filter and analyze the influencer community. Exactly. Yep. Tell me a little bit about how that came about. Sure. So when I started Cloud HQ, my main frustration that I was trying to solve was when I was running campaigns for these different brands, I was trying to experiment with as many different types of brands as I possibly could. So entertainment businesses, product sales, app companies, anything I could think of. And the problem with that on business model wise is every time I would go out to run a campaign, I would have to start over and like finding these different influencers. And I found myself on Google like a hundred times typing in giant list of influencers and nobody created it, like public database of influencers and nobody had created it because everybody wanted to be siloed. Like there's not really any free flowing of information of which influencers worked and which ones didn't. So I actually created CloudHQ so the market would have a public influencer database that was being crowdsourced by other people. So it all started because I was having such a hard time finding influencers. And the other people I was talking to were also having a hard time finding influencers. And so I thought if I could contribute something to this community, and the biggest problem that people were coming to me asking for was how they could find influencers and how they could actually analyze that person's reach and engagement on social media. And so it basically just started trying to solve my most prominent problem that I was running into when I was working with brands. Interesting. So how did you get started with that? Is, is it something that you invested the time and energy in building yourself? Yeah. So when I first started, I had one specific thing that was taking the most amount of time when it came to running campaigns with the influencers, which was sending content to people and sending like confirmation messages to influencers. And for me at the time, I thought it would be really interesting if I could have somebody build a software that would solve that. And then eventually that turned into wanting to get out of the service business and get more into the software as a service business because it's much more scalable and the business economics made much more sense to me at the time. And it kind of fits my personality better of being an architect of things that do cool stuff rather than having to take note of what brands are looking for and trying to dissect and create a vision for what they were looking for. It really just started as me wanting to not spend so much time in conversation with advertisers trying to understand what they were trying to accomplish and more so just building a tool that would solve the most obvious problems that everybody was facing, the most universal problems that everybody was facing. And it seems like you were solving problems that you were facing yourself. So you really had a sense of what you wanted to build. Yeah, exactly. How did you go about getting it built or did you build it yourself? No. So I actually hired somebody to build it. When it first started, it was meant to be an internal dashboard that I was going to use to manage my campaigns for different clients. And then after I built it, the guy that designed the website and created the different infrastructure to do it, he said, you know, it wouldn't be too difficult to switch this to a software as a service. And, and then you could charge people to access it. And so I said, that that sounds really cool. It sounds like a way better business model than what I'm currently doing. How do we set it up? And he, he gave me a quote for it. And we just went from there. That's fantastic. And sometimes a business like that just lands in your lap. Yeah, I was very fortunate with the timing on it because even just last year, the, the way that the influencer economy has been booming the past 24, 36 months has kind of been in spits and spurts of people thinking that it works and then thinking it doesn't work and then thinking it works and thinking that it doesn't work. And I got really lucky because when I first started that, it was right on the wave of people that were starting to adopt influencer marketing more seriously. And it happened to be the final step, like the final stage of an overall consensus that influencer marketing was the best brand building exercise that companies could be using. And then just perfectly positioning it there and then finding other people to start sharing it with people that they were consulting for their clients and things like that. That's really interesting. So now that you have this service in place, how do you go about marketing it? In the very beginning, my marketing strategy was pretty standard in the approach of software as a service businesses, you know, running Facebook ads, running email marketing campaigns, YouTube ads, talking to people, giving free subscriptions. All of those were kind of running as expected. Like I wasn't overly blown away by the results that, that I was getting from that. But a, a friend of mine based here out of Phoenix started promoting it at events that he was speaking at. So he would speak at these events with like 
200, 300 people at them. He would just mention it for like a second as like, hey, this is a worthwhile tool for you guys to check it out. And every time you do that, and I could start to track like where he was speaking and when he was speaking, because every time he would say something about it at an event, I could watch the Google Analytics, like pick up the site traffic and see how many people were converting. So as soon as I realized that, I'm like, okay, like this is something worth paying attention to. So I kind of started slipping the idea to other people that I knew were talking at similar events as this specific person. And once I had like four, four to six people consistently mentioning it throughout their segments of talking about digital marketing, it, it slowly started to grow the user base. That's fascinating. What, what is the segment that he was targeting? What were these audiences? The events that he was speaking at were digital marketing events, like direct consumer brands that are creating something new or creating like a unique angle to sell a specific type of product. A lot of the media buyers that would go to these events were trying to explore other opportunities they could use other than conventional media buying, like Facebook ads and email marketing and stuff. And for them, they didn't really have an option at that point because there was no prominent influencer platform at the time. Interesting. Have you started speaking at any of these events yourself? I haven't. Not yet. I have a sense that might be in your future. I would love to. One of my favorite things about seeing other people speak at events is you really get a sense for the emotion that they felt when they went through a journey. And I think as somebody that's observing somebody speak on a stage, being able to realize that like everybody's going through the same process of like failing and trying and failing and trying and experimenting with different options and like kind of showing some humility because it's definitely not easy to put on a perfect face from what I've heard speaking in front of 200 people. And I've always really enjoyed that you get to see the real character of somebody when they're standing in front of a bunch of people and that they're kind of expanding on their thoughts as they go throughout the talk. Yeah, there's no place to hide in front of an audience. That's right. Yep. I'm curious now, This what's, what is the structure of your business these days? Right now, I have four remote contractors that operate different divisions of the business. So for me, I'm most effective building out strategies and kind of being an architect of timelines and milestones and like building roadmaps of how things should evolve in the future. And so early on, I started putting people in spots where I just wasn't the best at like executing on social media, posting schedules, like showing up at the exact same time every single day to complete a routine task. That was never really my forte. And so right now I have four different remote contractors and they're focusing on areas of the business like creative design work, development. I have an executive assistant. She's just phenomenal that goes through looking for opportunities in the market and then helping me to expand in areas where I'm not the best at communicating to other people through like text and things like that. Well, sometimes it can be very hard for founders to realize where their strengths and where their weaknesses lie and then to figure out how to delegate those responsibilities. How did you end up segmenting that out? Yeah, I started journaling as soon as I woke up in the morning. And throughout my journaling process, I would write down how I felt in the morning. And then kind of the middle segment of is I would write about areas that I thought I just wasn't performing as best as I thought I should be. And when I started to see recurring themes over weeks or months at a time, I would start to examine what the alternatives to something like that were. And if there's a process that I knew that either I wasn't showing up for consistently, I wasn't the best at, or I just couldn't get it done as some other people. I would look at the options of either outsourcing it, not doing it at all, or hiring somebody internally to do it, or just figuring out how to do it myself. And for me, being a kind of a solopreneur, liking to travel a lot, not, not having really set structure in how I like to show up at the office every day, things like that really motivated me to hire a remote team rather than hiring internal people that showed up at the office every day. Yeah. So working with remote people, that can be challenging, not only with time zones, but also with communication styles. I'm curious what tools you use to keep track of your relationships with your uh, contractors. Yeah. So I use Slack. That's the, the best channel that I found because you have a person-to-person -person conversation channel where you can communicate one-on-one -on -one with people. And then you can have a community where 
anybody can join them, like having different channels where anybody could see what's happening in them, but they don't necessarily need to be contributing to it. I really like the layout for that, where anybody that was in the business could see what was going on in areas that maybe they weren't focusing on very much. That's what I like to use for conversations and keeping in touch with people. And then I use Zoom a lot for having face-to-face video calls with the entire team and people that I'm working with on different projects. And then Trello for like task management is something that I started using, but I'm starting to get more familiar with monday.com. And it seems like they're kind of taking over the task management space. So starting to use that more and more. It's kind of like Trello and Asana and Basecamp. It's really fascinating to hear how this works out. And as a solopreneur, I'm curious what your schedule looks like. How do you organize your time? I follow pretty much the same schedule every day. I wake up in the morning and I journal just overall thoughts about where my attention has been pulling me to, where I thought maybe might be a sign of something to pay attention to. So journaling aspects like that, that were kind of getting me off my day-to-day habit loop that I had built, that's probably the main thing that I use as an indicator of something that I need to either outsource, learn how to do myself or not do at all. And then when it comes to actually day-to-day operations, as soon as I'm done journaling, I meditate for a little bit and then I just hit the ground running. I try to at least. And then I'll reach out to all the team members, kind of just get an update for the day and like quick message back and forth and then make sure everybody knows where they should be focusing out for the day and that we're all still seeing the same vision that we set out to in the beginning. And then making sure that I'm being as effective as possible and then kind of trying to coach them to make sure that they're also being stretched to their full capabilities and growing in the position that they're in so that eventually I can put them in better positions and more more complicated positions where they can expand on their abilities. It's hard to grow a remote team sometimes. You don't have that direct access and you need to keep those relationships very strong. Mm -hmm. Yep. Something I've noticed a lot lately is the need to send messages to people that you could usually be having in like a normal conversation. Like maybe you're at the water cooler, like you're going out to lunch with somebody and like you have conversations that you think are just in passing or like small talk. But I found that those are really important because you start to realize that different people have different motives and they have different drivers that allow them to show up every single day and maybe do a task that's not the most exciting. And being able to learn about people's personal life and their personal ambitions and like what they like to do outside of work, just being able to build personal connections with people that way and find other things to talk about other than just the work that we're doing has been super helpful. How do you integrate that into life when you're working with people remotely? I'm very curious. I like to ask people a lot of questions. I've never really had a filter for what questions I was willing to ask and not willing to ask. (laughs) And maybe that's a strength and maybe it's a weakness. I would just ask people questions that popped in my mind that I thought would be interesting to know about them. And then if I thought that it was interesting enough where we could both expand on it and have an in-depth conversation about it, I would just keep asking them questions and having conversations over text. That's also another super strange thing about the internet world, especially like the community of younger entrepreneurs like myself that are not the conventional sense of like who an entrepreneur is to run and operate a decent business business is like, I'm totally used to having conversations over messenger and like Slack, like that's almost my normal. I have so few phone calls that I've considered shutting off the access to being able to have phone calls because I would say 90% of all of my conversations across at least 150 people are almost always through chats, through Slack or through text messaging or through Facebook messenger. Are there any other platforms that you like to use? Oh, there's so many. Telegram's pretty good. Skype is okay, but I wish everybody would switch to like one central platform. I mean, Messenger, Telegram, Slack, those are probably the main platforms that I spend the most time on. And I've noticed it tends to move in waves where you know this year, everybody's on this platform and the next year, everybody seems to move to another one. Yeah, there's so many. And I the funniest thing is each platform has its own vibe and it has its own energy to it. And the funniest part about building a lot of relationships with a lot of different people on a lot of different platforms is that everybody has a different personality on each platform. Some conversations that you have, like email, for example, like it's always professional, it's to the point, it's very standard and you know everybody's grammar is perfect. And then you move to Messenger and it's like just all 
all over the place. They're typing in like how their thought pattern goes. And it's almost like a conversational thing. And then other platforms, it's their personality changes on them. It's so interesting to see that. Well, when you do go study psychology, it sounds like you've got a topic for your thesis. <laughs> Absolutely. So you've got this business in place. What audience are you targeting with this business? Who, who benefits most from the services that you offer? The majority of my customers have been direct consumer brands that had some aspirational quality about the products they were selling. So companies that they usually have a higher price point, but things that people purchase because they want to integrate a new way of doing things into their entire lifestyle. Like luxury teeth whitening is something that I'm really fascinated by because it's a market that goes all the way from very inexpensive stuff that you could buy at like Costco on the shelf, all the way up to really expensive things that operate in different ways and have different functionalities. So working with companies like that is who I prefer to focus on the most. Have you had any big successes? One of my earliest successes was I was working with a clothing company and it was on Black Friday weekend and we drove a million dollars in sales on Cyber Monday. And it was from, I think we pushed 30 million impressions on social media and it generated them a million dollars in sales. So that was pretty cool. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. So I know my listeners include some people who probably are running aspirational companies that are targeting business to consumer and would love to find out more about how to get involved with your business. Where should I send them to find out more? Sure. Yeah. They can uh, send me an email at morgan at marketboost.biz, or you can just check me out on Facebook. If you just type in Morgan Kling, it should pop up as one of the first ones. And I'd be happy to connect with anybody and just help out however I can or offer a connection at least. Cool. And the company site is Clout HQ, right? CloutHQ.com? Yep. That's the software company. And then my consulting business is marketboost.biz. And that's where people can kind of see some of the clients that I've worked with in the past and what I'm up to. Okay, fantastic. Well, Morgan, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>